This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Margaret James. How are you doing, Margaret? I'm good. How are you, Ed? I'm doing excellent. So we're going to be talking about some various front-end technologies today. Uh, I saw that you were doing a talk locally here in Louisville uh, about front-end web development technologies, and um, I, I saw a video of the presentation and thought there was some really cool stuff in there, so invited you onto the show. Uh, so we're going to talk about those things in a moment, but first, why don't you give us a little introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, sure. I am, um, my, my current job is, uh, I'm a front-end developer at Swift Trip, which is based here in Louisville. It's um, a travel booking company, so I'm basically working with like flight itineraries and various uh, travel booking systems. And uh, I'm newer to the development world, like probably like many of your listeners. Um, I've been doing specifically living in the world of uh, React, which I know is a topic that you've had before, um, but there's a lot of front-end frameworks right now. So anyway, I'm I'm in the in the niche of front-end to full stack. I'm working a little bit with some middleware, um, and then my previous job, which I'm only mentioning because it's where I learned React. It was a really cool company called El Toro that does ad tech here in, in Louisville. But uh, yeah, my first development job was with all bleeding edge technology. So it was, um, I kind of did this talk partly because I have have never done the old school way of working with the DOM manipulation. And the more that I started to talk to people uh, who had traditionally done that, um, I kind of was thinking, I was like, man, you know, my background is not in the web. I was... I was doing exhibit design and, uh, you know, I did media for a while. So um, my background is, is varied. And f- so from that perspective, you know, everything is very new and exciting as far as like learning technologies and learning where they came from. So this this talk in me is kind of like, how did we get here? You know, not just me, but like the greater, you know, for newer developers, like things seem really neat right now. Like, what is the history of the front end and like, why are we doing so much like zany stuff and why weren't we doing that like 20 years ago? So, um, but yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that I reached out to you to do this is because I appreciated the, you know, fresh eyes perspective on the whole front end web development, uh, scene. Um, I've been doing web development for 15 years now. So I remember back when, you know, CSS was just being introduced and, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff was uh, not as um, structured as it is now. <laughs> Let's just say that it was a hot mess back then. <laughs> you know, you kind of dumped everything right straight into the HTML page and sent it down the wire and hoped for the best. And gradually we've seen, you know, technologies added and go out of style and you ha- you name it. And, um, you know, you- you're coming into this from a, a newer perspective where you didn't see the whole evolution take place before your eyes and, and be part of that whole process. 
so it's it's great to have that new perspective on things and, and kind of get your opinions on uh, why the technologies that we have now are, are helpful to you and, and how you use those. And uh, and then I can maybe provide some insight yeah. <laughs> as to how, how bad things used to be or or uh, how I feel about them now. Yeah, no, I did some good uh, field research by talking to people. I was like, so tell me about fighting browsers in 19, the 1990s. Like you had to use different like flavors of JavaScript, which like blew my mind. I was like, what a nightmare that sounds like. Um, but yeah, and, and one thing I think that it's really important to understand the history of things. So especially for for newer people, but for anybody, because you want to know, not everybody gets to work on greenfield projects, you're going to be seeing legacy code at some point. And I think there's a tendency to think like, if I don't understand this, you know, it's stupid, and I want to rewrite it. Uh, and so part of this is I'm working with a lot of legacy code at my job. And um, I was just like, it was a conundrum. I was like, why was this ever done this way? Um, and so I think kind of understanding whatever, you know, whatever field you work in, understanding where the current practices came from, you know, they weren't developed for no reason. It was like pain points happened and technologies grew to meet those needs. Um, I think it's super helpful for even things like troubleshooting, you know, specific problems in your code. You're like, okay, maybe this was built for you know, it was an old like JSP file and you understand the server side rendering thing, which is, uh, you know, it was dynamic, dynamically generated server side pages. Like what's that if you're on the front end? So, um, but yeah, I think the history of things is just, re it's really important for people to at least have a little bit of an understanding, even if you can't pick it up and run with, uh, with old code. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, uh, definitely, important to go back and see how things were done previously and know history uh, in regards to most careers, but especially this one. And I think that the, the fact that you, you're doing that research and, you know, learning about these past technologies that you may or may not even encounter, um, it will it'll set you above the rest eventually. You, you'll, these type of activities that you're involved in uh, help accelerate your career pretty quickly. Uh, you know, learning about these various technologies and, and how they came about is is pretty much, um, you know, paramount to, to being successful these days in understanding, you know, legacy projects that you're going to have to work on and stuff like you mentioned. Uh, I come from the background of working with classic uh, ASP uh, pages and stuff like that. So, you know, I relate to the the JSP world that you're talking about and it's, it's very old school and like I said, you kind of just dump everything into your HTML mm -hmm. and and send it from the server and and uh, hope that the client <laughs> does a good job. Yeah. It. Well, and and I do want to um, I do want to mention one thing, which is I think that it's like I hear a lot of people who are new say, you know, like what specific framework should I learn? Like what what tool should I use? And and the thing that I am addressing with this talk and that I think is really important to think about is not what what the tool is, but what problem it was trying to solve. Um, so in that, like the problems that the front end even cares about 
have really changed a lot since we were like dynamically generating, you know, or undynamically just had static pages on the server that were being served directly to the client. Um, the problems were completely different. Um, so the, so the, right. the tools are yeah. really the product of your challenges. So I think that just saying like, oh, I should learn React because everybody's talking about it. You know, I think it's really about figuring out how these tools fit together and assessing, you know, knowing the different parts of architecture so that you can kind of clearly analyze like what you need to do um, instead of just throwing yourself like at, you know, at the hotness right now, whatever it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so back in uh, this, this old school ASP days, like what, uh, what's your perspective on, you know, what, what was the problem being solved at that um, time? So in my, in my research <laughs> slash as a user of the internet then, and also talking to people who were, uh, were writing code, it was really thing. So if you looked at a page on, in a browser, it lived in its entirety on the server. You know, if you had an interaction with it, it was almost always triggering a full page reload. Uh, I think the browser was really thought of as like the delivery mechanism only. Um, and so because of, because of that, you had, you know, maybe inline styling. It was really like markup, like markup is the architecture. You have JavaScript doing a little bit of event handling, um, but you weren't seeing things like persistent state, basically front end state, which I think it's good to define what state is. It's just like a set of data that can change over time. Um, so something like, you know, do you have any items in your shopping cart? What are they? In the old, the older days, it was like, if you even had something that complex, it would be, um, you click on an item, a request is sent, the whole page reloads after the server processes it. So you, you're given a fresh state based on what the server is telling you. Um, so it's really a front end state that is entirely dependent on the back end state and doesn't exist really that much outside of it. Does that, does that jive with your experience? So yeah, I think you summed it up pretty good. Um, you know, back in in the day, we had uh, you know, basically it started with templating, uh, and then we started adding some forms and stuff to the page, and we'd send that down the wire. And then uh, things like ASP.NET came along and needed to, or felt like they needed rather to keep the state for us, and this kind of bridged the gap between uh, desktop development and web development a little bit, and what it do is completely um, use, it would use a thing called a view state to completely uh, abstract away the fact that the web is a, you know, a stateless uh, type of system. And uh, it would try to keep state for you and it, it made it, the pages bloated and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, things had to get better from there. <laughs> So was was view state was that like in the window object? So I mean, basically, the, the view state would kind of mimic the development behaviors of the desktop. So if you had a label on your form, uh, you'd send that down to the client, and then the client would put some data in that label and post back. And uh, on the server side, that that data would persist. 
through the next you know several posts back as long as the person stayed on that that page or that view. Um, so you know every request that the user made, it would send that entire state down the wire, and it would be um, you know the changes would be kept in that view state and then sent completely back up the wire uh, with the page. So there was this kind of blob of data that would just keep getting chucked back oh, and gotcha. forth like ping pong between the, the client and the server. Uh, and if <laughs> you weren't cognizant of that view state and how much stuff was getting jammed in it, uh, for example, if you had a, a data grid with you know hundreds of records on it and you're editing things and you know, this, this view state could just grow enormously and, you know, connections weren't great back then. Uh, so this thing could get out of control and just start eating up your performance. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and that's the interesting, um, or not the interesting, it was really, it was to me, like as an outsider, kind of fascinating to hear about like, okay, so everything requires basically a full page load. This is back with, you know, connection speeds that are almost laughable now. Like I, you know, I remember feeling like 28k. I was like, man, we're blazing. Um, but yeah, the the amount of data that you don't actually need to to have sent back and forth, you know, had to be sent back and forth because you didn't have something like jQuery and AJAX and those. I did. I didn't really understand how much those revolutionized, like what the client could do. Like you could have multi-page forms, for example, without having to, you know, do full full-page reloads. Which, if you're thinking, you know, from a user perspective, it starts to feel more like a desktop application and less like, <laughs> you know, a really slow internet page. <laughs> that's you know, kind of frustrating to the user. Yeah, I think so, users. Um, yeah. You know, they they're what do you call it, um, expectations, you know, uh, they evolve as well. So you, know, you go from it being okay to, you mm -hmm. know, flashing this whole page, you know, white and redrawing it all uh, because there just wasn't anything better back then. You know, there's no alternative. It's either develop it on the desktop and eliminate that or, uh, you know, have this model where you can massively distribute an application and have, uh, anybody with a web browser able to access it and not have to install it on their client. So you've got this this trade-off you're making. You know, yeah, the the user experience isn't great, but the deployment experience is better. And we kind of roll with it from there. And then eventually, you know, we start getting uh, users like wanting that more desktop-like experience and expecting, well, we have this thing in the, you know, I know I open it in the browser, but it could run a little better, right? Right. And as, as the web became more prevalent, I think a lot of companies kind of upped their expectation. I mean, if you think about it, the browser is a universal platform. It has all this potential. Um, you're not having to ask people to download an application. Like it, I think, I think that as the technology started existing, this is when we start to define the front end as, um, kind of have not more pressure but there there's a distribution of weight that i think of early on was mainly like almost 100 percent on the server and um when you're talking about smooth interactions on a browser because you're trying to sell a product you know your, your business cases are increasingly pushing toward web applications um 
I think that that was really, it sounds like a really fun time to, to be doing development because you had stuff like partial page reloads, you could do asynchronous things, um, and people wanted it. You know, they're like, sure, let's, can we make this whole application on the web? Like, let's try and do it. Yeah. There was a little bit of a painful transition in that, that era too, where mm -hmm. you're used to writing everything on the server side and then these newfangled things like Ajax come around <laughs> yeah. and they, they do fun stuff like let you, you know, partially reload a page and, and not have that whole page refresh. Um, but there's a learning curve there and you're, you're not a JavaScript developer per se, maybe you're a Java developer or a .NET developer. Um, or using something like uh, uh, Cold Fusion or whatever, and you're not used to writing uh, JavaScript code on the client. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're having to deal with this Ajax object in JavaScript. And how do you, you know, deal right. with that? And um, how do you take the HTML that already exists on the page and manipulate it with the new information that just came back? So there, there was quite a bit of learning curve there. Yeah, well, and I... I um... I tried to think of each of these eras as, you know, what were the concerns of the front end developers at the time that, you know, in, in our old school era, which would be, you know, CGI, PHP, JSP, all the, the content is being maybe dynamically generated on the server, but it's pre Ajax and jQuery, you know, the developers would maybe be thinking about styling and event handling, and then cross compatibility with different browsers, you know, you weren't, needing to worry about uh, things like, you know, code organization for asynchronicity and like, what if someone new comes and can they find, you know, how easy to reason about is your code now that you're introducing stuff that is maybe familiar to some people, but I think it really starts to take on a, um, a an interest. I wouldn't say there's like the demand yet, but I think some people were starting to think more about how do you structure a code base that, is a little bit starting to be more independent from a server side uh, stru code structure. Yeah, I think I think we had a lot of best practices in server side and you know desktop development uh, code back then, but there really wasn't a lot of separation of concerns at all on the front end stuff. You kind of had your HTML and templating and any JavaScript that you wrote, any CSS that you may have had if it existed. Uh, was just jammed straight in that one page. So you had one, mm -hmm. um, you had one feature that you were writing, and it was all done in one one view for the client. Yeah, yeah, the inline styling. I was, uh, I heard someone talking about. I think you know the idea of if you have something like a hundred pages on your web app, and you know the background now needs to be blue instead of red, you have to go and change a hundred files. It's like. A really, I don't know, like that. I was like, oh, you might my have God, to change a hundred files, you may have to change a hundred um, instances in each of those files as well. <laughs> yeah, just to do what we would consider now, like one thing, you like go to the CSS file and change the header color. Like, what's the big deal? So it really, yeah, it was. I I think that HTML really, as a format, um, you can see that evolution from a format to you know. Fast forward to 2017, it's really a programming environment. You know, you're dynamically generating JavaScript that makes, you know, a DOM-like structure. And it's like, it's very complex. But I mean, at this point, we're still looking at it as like the HTML is the, it's the 
you know, scaffolding on which everything yeah, is I think built. we're, you know, going way back, we're, we're pretty much just doing this all as a hack. Uh, you know, this isn't what the technology was intended mm -hmm. to do. And, you know, we've come up with all of these nifty things to do and we get to this server side stuff and then we, you know, tack on some more cool stuff with Ajax and we get into jQuery and then we kind of keep evolving. Mm -hmm. And and one thing I didn't realize that like made developers' lives a lot easier about jQuery is you no longer had to, you know, write five different ways of doing the same thing for five different browsers. Like it, it uh, you know, spanned browsers. So as a developer, you now have more time. You can, you know, you, you're not having to write event handlers to the detail that you were before. It's like just making you be able to go faster, not necessarily like what you did with your extra time, then, you know, you could do more fun stuff instead of saying like, well, I really don't know if I can uh, give this feature to like Netscape Navigator because it's like, I've already written it, for, you know, these other four times. So um, you start to see, I think, a lot more, uh, it starts to feel like the fun, like Wild West to, you know, from their perspective of not having to make these like minutia uh, cases run for the same things over and over. So extensibility essentially is uh, is really kind of emerging as a front end thing at this point. And from the user's perspective and, and even IT in general, you know, back then if we didn't have something like jQuery, we were either forced to test like every scenario, which is almost impossible, um, <laughs> yeah. or we had to go to, you know, our supervisors or IT people or whatever and say, all right, we're going to build this thing, but everybody's only allowed to use Internet Explorer or uh, Netscape or yeah. whatever the, the best browser for the company is going to be. Yeah. Generally, it was IE if you're inside of an enterprise. And it's like these third-party you know, browsers, just you're not going to be able to use those things. We're going to throw up a big banner and just say, go use IE, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a terrible user experience. But you know, when you're, you're forced into a corner, you got to make some decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that leads well into the, the next phase I kind of defined as uh, MV star or MV thing, but it would be uh, it's based off of the model view component structure that existed on the server um, was, I guess, the way I understand it, basically we started to see these you know, more complex demands on the front end and it suddenly became more imperative to think about like developing something similar to how this to how the server handles um, you know code organization uh, isolation of you know specific pieces of logic and so you know we're starting to see at, at first it really did seem like they were modeled very closely off of uh, server side model view controllers, but the variations are, I think it's like, you know, MVP for model view presenter, MVVM. There are several different flavors of these, but um, it was interesting to, you know, if you think about it, you're making something up from scratch. So you're like, let's look at how these guys are doing it and, you know, we'll give it a shot. So then you see, uh, I don't, did you use like Backbone or Knockout, the, any of the early MVs? So I never really got into any of the MVC patterns uh, very much uh, during that time. Um, 
I saw jQuery, you know, fitting a pretty good role in it. It still does a great job, to be honest. Um, and I remember talking to coworkers and about some of these things and being like, you know, we write MVC on the on the back end, and now people are starting to do MVC on the front end. So we've got an MVC application on the server talking to an MVC <laughs> application on the client. Like, when is this going to be overkill? And uh, you know, I kind of stayed on the the jQuery side of things for a while and um, didn't get into too many. Uh, of the backbones or Angular JS's uh, early on, uh, so it took me a little little more convincing <laughs> that these were necessary things. Uh, but you you can see you know the the separation of um, concerns being a, a benefit if you have to you know make something that's large and maintainable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you wanted a way to to kind of have a standardized structure to have multiple people be able to come in and work on a code base to be able to extend a certain pattern. Um, so I think the need for structure s seems like the, the prevalent reason why, you know, you even have something like an MVC as opposed to, and again, something I like to emphasize is like, you can use any of these, like, even now, like you can write straight up, like, don't even use jQuery, you can write like, Vanilla JavaScript, like you can implement anything you want, but the question is like, are you making it harder for yourself or are you allowing yourself to isolate problems so they're easier to think about and easier to collaborate and have, you know, a future you or a future someone else read and understand what's going on? Yeah, I think that's one thing that people tend to miss with these open source projects and you see like really big companies get behind them. Uh, things like React and you know Facebook and um, uh, Angular JS or Angular and Google is you know why why do they want to open source these things? Well, one of the reasons I, I feel like it is a driver behind this is if Google doesn't open source this framework that they use internally, then your you know pool of people to hire is much smaller. Yeah, you can find people that that develop JavaScript. Mm -hmm. But if you open source your, you know, Angular framework, then all of a sudden you have a pool of Angular developers you can hire from. Uh, same thing goes for React. You know, you have this new pool of devs that you've just created outside of the company. Right. Whereas before, you know, they'd, they'd be only internal. Right. And they're contributing back to the community usually, you know, the pull requests, like make new um, you know, extensions using different packages. It's like a very, React especially has a very uh, rich community um, for people just, you know, getting wild with it. Like, you want a date picker? We got a lot of this, <laughs> you know, depends on what kind you want. Um, so yeah, it's, I think having something that, that people feel excited about enough to want to uh, use it for personal projects to, you know, feel like it's a thing that they look forward to when they go to work and not something that they dread or that feels so proprietary they can't use it ever again after the, you know, the job they're at. I think that's pretty important for the lifespan of some of these tools. Yeah, I don't think that's something that, that people really saw coming in the first you know iteration of these MVC, MV star type uh, JavaScript frameworks when they first came out. It was kind of you know, you had these community type things like Backbone and Knockout, which came from, you know, different community efforts. Like, uh, I believe Knockout was um, 
uh, came out of a .NET um, MVVM pattern, mm-hmm. and uh, that that kind of got popular. But it wasn't something that was backed by one of these you know big software technology companies. And that stuff started to come later. It's it's interesting to see that transition. Right. And I mean, you're also starting to see for the first time, you know, if you're buying into a framework, you know, you're kind of committing your code base. There's there's all these other decisions that are now going with it. You know, like, do your other developers know it? There's, you know, how good is the documentation? You know, how flexible is it? There's there's a, a you know, more decisions are needing to be made because you're kind of you know, shackling yourself or tying yourself, depending on how you want to look at it, to something. So knowing its ins and outs, you know, feeling comfortable that it will continue to be um, something that people want to use and that serves its purpose. uh, It was hard. I think that if I were going to come up with a motto for this era, it'd be like, you know, MVCs, like we're doing the best we can. It's just like, (laughs) you know, it was trying to figure it out, you know, iterations at a time. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> NPC, we're doing the best we can. Um, and to clarify, this is like, I'm talking about early, so I'm talking about Angular 1, um, early Ember, because I know that uh, my, I'm going to distinguish this from the next phase, which is uh, component-based and unidirectional. So um, I'm definitely not like advocating any specific tools, but there there is a big shift, I think, from this first generation you know, MVCs or MV stars um, to some of the practices that like Angular, you just say two plus now. I know that it's like up, up to four or seven. It's just like, it's going real fast now, but post, <laughs> yeah. post two, I think two is a rewrite. So the, the technical terms I've, I've seen solidify are Angular JS is one X, uh, Angular is two and above. Yeah. <laughs> So we've dropped when you drop the JS part. Uh, right. I'm assuming because it's written in TypeScript, uh, and there there were some early on uh, initiatives to write it in Go, I believe, or something like that. Um, I think they dropped the JS there and and just say now it's okay. Angular, and that'll be two X through whatever it ends up being today. There's probably a new release this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and and so I guess to so if if you weren't following the MV thing at the time, like the like, why did we shift away from it? It sounds great. We're doing things how the server is doing it. Um, part of the the challenge that you really have on the front end that you don't have on the server is you have um, kind of two directions that state can change from. So you have a user, and then you have you know your model or whatever you're pulling from the database to be like the the persistence of what they should see next, like data that's now updated and modified. And the the thing that seemed always to be kind of frustrating and and people, you know, felt a lot of friction with it with MV things were kind of the result of two-way binding. So you have, you know, two components. It's like complexities basically, if you're doing a very simple thing, sure, two-way binding sounds great. You know, as you have more and more components. If you have more and more, you know, say this this UI is now, you know, coded to explicitly like handle an event that triggers something that's going to trigger an you know another UI. It it became not super clean. I think 
as it scaled up, it became a, they could, they could become complex. Like you didn't need to, if you thought about it very carefully, I'm sure you could avoid that, but it seemed like they would accidentally, you know, you think you're doing something simple, but the complexity was suddenly like starting to feel like a real pain point. And your event handling becomes really spaghetti at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think at this point it's, it's becoming clear that, you know, using the solution from a different environment was, you know, it was the first shot at trying to solve this problem. Uh, but having these two, having basically a view layer of data, like there's the view on the screen and then there's application data, which is, you know, stuff that maybe you can't see, but represents, you know, this, this state, the ephemeral state of, um, the user now that they've added a you know, a new photo and it hasn't gotten to the server yet, but there's kind of these two very different types of state and MVCs weren't treating them as different. Um, they were just saying, well, if it's an event and, you know, like we'll result here, it's on the screen. Now it's showing this, but part of the complexity is that you couldn't reason about those fundamentally separate things in a separate way. You're always worried about them tangling back into each other. Um, and that's, I'm kind of paving the way for the, the unidirectional data flow that, um, that React introduced. But as you can see, it would just, if you can imagine a model of like, you know, three bubbles at MVC, it's like you would have arrows going both ways between the um, view and the model and then the controller and the view. It's just, it's not necessarily something that you're like, easy peasy, I'll look at that and know exactly, you know, how everything's going to work out. Yeah, um, I think a lot of this stems back again to user expectations. Mm-hmm. Like we keep, uh, you know, as, as people and human beings, we expect things to keep evolving and we have these apps and we, we want these, you know, this thing that makes my job easier to make it more easier tomorrow. Right. And if that means I have a grid on my page of data, I want to be able to sort it six ways from Sunday and have a nice uh, thing that I can drag to, you know, close the date range and sort it and filter it and all that good stuff. And, you know, you start adding all of these functionalities on and developers start, you know, losing track of all of the different interactions that have to happen on one single page to make the user happy. Right. And I I had defined for this stage, uh, kind of defining what was happening as you had more frequent asynchronous connections to the back end. Um, you wanted to be doing more data manipulation in the browser. Uh, and this could be sharing state among components. I always feel like Spotify is a good example for this because, you know, in your mind, you can kind of imagine the different component parts of Spotify. And it's like, you know, what you're listening to is maybe going to modify, you know, the playlist that it's suggesting for you. Like you, you want a way of when you update one component for that to be kind of hydrated to other parts of the component, other components in your application without necessarily triggering unwanted changes. Um, And you have widgets that modify data, you know, filters. It's like, you're just doing more. You almost want a little database on the front end that you can just like query and do how you would do it on the back end, you know? Yes. Those on, you know, unintended 
behaviors and you know if one of those components gets out of sync with the others in front of your user that's when all hell breaks loose you know, you know they throw their hands in the air and desks start getting flipped and <laughs> i'm assuming this is what happens when when a user sees a, an error page but <laughs> you get a raging email at the end of the day is what really happens. You're like, and they're like, this thing doesn't work. It's terrible. Uh, or you know, it took hours to load. And you go back and, you know, three seconds feels like an eternity. Uh, right. Those type of things happen. And you're like, all I wanted to do was take this item out of the list. Why did the whole application slow down to a crawl and then crash? It, like, from a user perspective, I can see getting very frustrated by stuff that in the code might be complex, but you're like, I did a simple thing. Why is this application freaking out? You know? Um, so, so making it so that someone who, you know, your boss comes and says like, add this simple feature. You're not like, Oh my God, this is going to take two weeks. You know, <laughs> you, want, you want to be able to extend it easily without having, um, unwanted and unanticipated consequences for you know, refactoring, for changing, modifying, and extending. You don't want to feel like you're trying to jump aboard a moving bus or something to, to add a new feature. Right. Like, just pretend you're out of the office. Be like, I'm not here today. Please, no. <laughs> no more features. So, so how does this unidirectional component architecture help us? So... Fundamentally, I was mentioning how there's kind of a presentational data layer and then there's the application state that we'll just, you know, summarize it by saying things that you can't see that maybe are derived and turned into the UI. But, um, you know, an object that says like how many, uh, you know, when the last time you uploaded a certain thing was or if an asynchronous call is complete, um, things like that. What unidirectional presentation does, and React is different in this. So React only cares and only deals with presentation. And why I think it's important to emphasize that is it's it's making it's taking the chance for you to step on your own toes out of things. It's saying, I don't care how I get the state. If you tell me, you know, this window should be open, I will be open. Like it, and the, the cool thing about React is that the, so it's a component driven declarative view library and each component can manage its own state. So if you have a video player, it knows if it's stopped or if it's playing, it doesn't need to know anything else. So you're passing information into it and it's like, all right, now I'm playing, you know, now I'm stopped. And in this case, it would be a user action that could trigger that. But the point is to really be able to clearly reason about a thing. If you pass properties into the view, the view is just there. Um, and so I'm not, what I'm not talking about is, you know, and, and when I first was learning about it, React, I was like, well, how do you do the rest of the things? And React leaves all of that up to you. And I think that's part of why it's so popular. You can manage state in whatever way you want. You don't even, you know, you could just use React state if you don't have a very complex application. You know, if you open a component, you can have it exist. You can do toggles, all that just exists within that, um, that component itself. So unidirectional data flow when it comes to the view layer is kind of severing 
the two-way binding where the view would update the model. So the view is read-only, essentially. Um, and so it makes it very easy to reason about. It makes writing components very extensible because you could have a button that has an event handler as a property and you just pass in like, okay, for this button, I want it to be a save, you know, and on the button over here, you're using the same exact component, but you can kind of set, you can architect things, I think, in a more flexible and powerful way by determining what properties you want to be in which components and then you're in charge of the fun stuff, which is like, when should the components appear? And all of that is kind of managed using logic that is not an inherent part of React. Um, so I think the people who get really jazzed about it are people who are like, oh, I know exactly how I'm going to handle routing and I know what I'm going to use for state. And it can feel, I think, overwhelming because it's a really elegant solution for one part of the problem. Um, but things like Ember and Angular, they kind of give you like a full solution to everything. You're like, if you want to do routing, here's how you got to do it. So, I, and why I'm trying to define one way presentational uh, data flow is because React exists as like a little sub compartment of unidirectional flow in general. Um, so Ember, for example, would kind of span the, the full, uh, well, I don't, I don't know enough about new Ember to say for certain, but I know that the component-based approach has been adopted by newer versions of Angular and of Ember. But the point is that the unidirectional view part can really be said to be like full, kind of like fully embraced by, you know, in increasing numbers by frameworks and libraries. It's very simple to, um, it's, you know, it's declarative as opposed to imperative. So it's the one-way flow, I think, makes it super simple to think about. Yeah, Angular is definitely monolithic in, in this regard. Like it, like you said, does everything. Uh, and some people find security in that, and then some people find confusion. Um, I think I lean more on the confusion side. I, I think there's a, a lot of opinion in that framework, and it's doing a lot of things. Um, so Vue and React are, are on my agenda of things to learn uh, more about. Um, I think there's a, a lot of interesting things that they're doing uh, that that can be utilized. Um, one of the things with React, and it's it's good to to have somebody with some fresh eyes on this, is uh, React does a lot of um, intermingling of HTML and JavaScript within the JSX. Uh, component architecture. Mm -hmm. Somebody that's newer looking at this stuff, it, does that uh, present any confusion? Is it easier to learn that way? Is it tougher? Would you rather see, you know, the HTML and JavaScript separated? How do you feel about that? I mean, I, that's a good question. I think, I think because I was so new, it felt like a super logical thing. I, I've heard a lot of desk flipping reactions to people who first saw that they were like what you can't do this like there is html and then there's javascript like the idea that someone would want to combine them 
is infuriating. But really to me, so instead of having a div tag, you would have essentially like the open and close, but it would say like header with a capital H. It's very similar to this, I think the SOAP API syntax, if you're familiar with that. Um, so because of just understanding fundamentally how the HTML was a structural object, and when you're writing a component, you're like, okay, this is a structure I'm going to call a button. It, I think you didn't have any of the, or at least in my case, I didn't have any of the, you know, years of use and, and knowing that HTML needs to be this and JavaScript needs to be this. So I think, I think being new is actually, it's like a great time to learn React. Um, people who have a lot of experience in JavaScript, I think, I haven't talked to anybody who initially saw JSX and had a lot of experience with JavaScript and was like, I love this. Like <laughs> almost across the board, they were like, this is blasphemy. What is happening? And it people did come around. But the thing that I think was really challenging is we were separating files by types. And, you know, nowadays it's like the separation of concerns really does feel very natural in React. Like you are, you have an HTML element that is defined in a way that is being generated by JavaScript and you can write straight up JavaScript to do things like event handling, to do, you know, ternaries. Like it's very elegant. It's just like using JavaScript to you know, weave HTML, that's exactly what you want it to be, instead of kind of binding to the HTML and manipulating it uh, directly. So being new, I think it actually like felt very intuitive to learn it. I was like, this is cool. Like, why wouldn't we ever have done it this way? Um, <laughs> yeah. In doing your research and, and looking back at uh, some of the earlier stuff where yeah, we didn't have a choice to separate right. these things out, maybe other than, you know, calling it in from an out, uh, an external file, uh, you know, linking to a JavaScript file. Uh, a lot of times these things were just jam packed into one web page, like everything, all the functionality, all the componentry, all mm -hmm. the JavaScript, all the styling, <laughs> and it's just one HTML file. Mm -hmm. Um, could you see where some people would look at, you know, React syntax and be like, oh, we're doing this thing again that was really bad a long time ago? Yeah, except I, I would say the one nice thing about that is you can have, um, so if you're troubleshooting in the old way, you would be like, have one finger on the HTML, HTML file, you know, one finger on the JavaScript file, and then one on CSS. And I do think that I I do think we're coming full circle and it does feel like React you can do inline styles, like, you know, <laughs> we're coming, coming back, but it, it is easier to look at and know what's going on, but you have additional functionality now. But I, I can see because that was evolved away from that it feels like bad. You're like, we're returning to a thing that we escaped. Um, but I think the more you learn about it, you realize like how flexible and powerful and really approachable it is. I think once you can get over stuff like the JSX and you need to learn about lifecycle, there's a few things that are kind of fundamental to React and understanding it. But starting there, I think you can very quickly really have fun with it. Um, yeah. I, 
I think what the key difference is between what we used to do with putting all these things in one basket uh, and what React is doing, and, and even Angular does this to some extent, um, is that in the old day, we would literally take the entire page and all of the things that page did and just mix the entire thing together. Uh, where, you know, these newer component models, they're mixing things together, but they're doing it in uh, not as a holistic you know, application approach, but in various little components. So yeah, the the different you know, HTML and JavaScript and styles and stuff are being mixed together, but they're they're being mixed together in a more uh, intelligent, compartmentalized, you know, micro type of a way. Yeah, I think it's really encapsulating. Like you're troubleshooting a bug or working on a feature it's encapsulating where you're working on that so instead of needing to work across html javascript and um css you're like here's the one file i'm working on like i'm going to make a variation of it or you know add some more logic that checks for this other thing so i think it's it's really looking at how people i mean i think it feels very developer friendly because it's like what is the thing you're working on it is a component like it will appear as a component you work on how you however you want it to to appear and it will appear but it just makes it i think by taking away the two-way binding it makes it easier to just think about the thing that you're thinking about and not need to hold all these like other balls in the air that you're juggling um and because of that i think it makes it you can devote more of your brain to problems, you can go a lot faster when you are just dealing with the view layer. Um, it kind of makes it easier to just think about like one problem at a time without needing to have your brain in, you know, three different places. Yeah, I think a lot of people, some, sometimes they look at the way something is being done um, and they're like, okay, this is going to lead to people writing very poor applications and application code. And a lot of times I'll tell those people, yeah, I've seen some very elegant, you know, jQuery applications just as mm -hmm. many times as I've seen terrible <laughs> architected jQuery applications. Uh, you know, you could you can make some very nice React applications just as easily as I'm sure you could make some very terrible React applications. Mm -hmm. And it's up to developers to take responsibility and, and follow some best practices and build stuff the right way. Yeah, and I think it is. It's like, what is your opinion on side effects? If you're like, a, you know, if you feel very proficient and you're like, I can totally manage all my side effects, it'll be fine. That's one thing. But the question is like, wouldn't it be better if you didn't have side effects? Maybe you had like a, like a function, an immutable function or something that just outputs the changes that you want when you trigger it. It really, there's a certain like, clarity and I think a power that comes from being able to do that exact, do exactly what you want without mutating. Because I think mutation, I don't know that anybody loves it. I think that directly manipulating the DOM is um, the number one thing people try and do when they're like first learning React. They're like, okay, well, how am I going to, you know, I want to grab the DOM and do this thing. And because React is one way, it's like, no, you have to, it's a little bit, it takes a second to get your mind around, but you're like, no, you need to update the state. And then the state 
then don't worry about it. The state will like make that component either there or not there. So it's kind of, you know, trusting that your side effects are already handled because there aren't any unless you want them to be there. And then they're not really side effects. So I think that's the neat part about it that makes it, even if you write bad React code, you still can't have side effects. You could write things that you didn't mean to happen, but there won't be in the same, like there won't be side effects that you would see maybe from two-way data binding issues. So what you're, you're saying is you feel like it makes it more difficult to screw up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's built in. It's like, it's like going on a, you know, very fast road with, maybe like better guardrails or something. So you can still go whatever speed you want. You can go to whatever place you want, but it's keeping you off of the thing that, you know, maybe there's actually no benefit to it really doing. Like you can do it in another way that's cleaner and that, you know, can be debugged and reproduced more easily. Cause that's the thing about mutations. It's really hard to, you know, write tests when you're mutating something. It's much easier in a functional paradigm because you say like, you know, these inputs will always give me these outputs, you know, test done. Um, so I think that's another really big benefit of, of React and Redux, which is the state management uh, system that pairs really well with it and that has a very high adoption rate, but it's all based on functional programming. So it is very predictable in that way. Um, I don't know if we want to go into functional programming at all, but it, it's basically just it, the two the two tenets of it are you know given the same inputs, always returns the same output and has no side effects. So you're not doing anything within your function that would you know be relying on something else or mutating it in any way. It's it's a returning a new version of the state. So and all this is worth reading more detail if you're like curious about Redux and how it does it or React, a lot of it is, if you're learning, just curious about functional programming, it's a, I think it's a good way to see how that could be executed and why it can be performant in certain ways, so. Yeah, I feel like functional programming really has a, a lot of place in modern development. Um, this, this is one of the things that kind of uh, bothers me about Angular is that it, it kind of lacks this functional programming aspect. Um, and I'm sure it's an arguable point that people will probably make with me. Um, but I, in my opinion, I feel like Angular is very imperative. Uh, there's a lot of um, managing state internally within components, and uh, it doesn't have that functional programming feel that I would expect from a modern uh, development framework. And I, I'm seeing functional programming, you know, come around in the server development a lot more. And uh, I was expecting to see a lot more of it in uh, front-end development as well. So it's uh, definitely something worth looking at. And uh, I think React or Redux rather is something that I, I need to look into. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And for those of you who I found this really good example of when I was trying to think of how to like define declarative versus imperative, but uh, like declarative is telling your friend to go paint a landscape and imperative is telling them like exactly every step that they need to do to, that will result in them painting a landscape. So um, a neat way of thinking, 
a neat way of thinking about it for me is when you look at two-way binding, it is saying how everything needs to happen. And with your with things that are declarative, it is just saying like, this is what we'd like to have. Like, I'm going to give you a string and that string is save. Now take that and do whatever you will with it. But it's at that point just triggering a string of events that doesn't necessarily bind to other things. Um, there's some good diagrams, but it, it took me a while to like really wrap my head around Redux because of the one-way flow. I'm just like, but wait, what if, you know, what if these two components need updating they're next to each other? Like, how does that work? And thinking about the unidirectional nature of it, it's like, there's a store, and the store hydrates everything. It is the universal shared state. And those components are basically just subscribed to the store. So it's like, oh, that's a property on the store. Now, you know, now I know that this user has saved. So this box is no, no longer open. And it's a, just a very clear, I think it's a very clear and architecturally interesting way to think. You can just be on like whatever level you're on. You can be in a little subcomponent nested in a bigger component, but you're really only thinking about, you know, the thing that you need to think about, if that makes sense, which is very nice, I think, for, for beginners and for people who maybe are just, you know, feeling like they can't, they have a new developer, it's like difficult to teach them you know, things that aren't always obvious from looking at the code base itself. I think React has a very, the declarative nature makes it super hard not to understand, I think. I think with functional programming, what I've seen is you get a lot more bite-size, uh, reusable pieces of code that can be, uh, and again, you can write terrible functional code and you can write beautiful mm -hmm. imperative code, uh, but you get you tend to get with functional more um, human readable you know functions and things that are easily digested in small pieces that you can understand and then like you said chain together or call from you know one function another function to do something and delegate things and uh, mm -hmm. I think that type of compositional programming um, has a lot more mileage than these you know imperative style. Uh, things that have to maintain state on their own and uh, usually don't have good separation of concerns <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, uh, may or may not uh, repeat code snippets several times, uh, that type of stuff. I again, there's best practices that can be followed in both places. Uh, I just find that it's, it's, I guess, easier to follow those best practices with functional style programming than the latter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, I think that functional programming is very it's like, it is challenging to learn, but the neat thing about the tools I'm talking about is it's how, that's how they're implemented, but you don't actually need to write. You can use any old JavaScript when you're writing within React. It's just how, how React components are rendered are all uh, functional. So it's, a, you know, the component is a function and then the parameters are like the properties. So, I mean, Redux, you do need to know functional programming, but don't give up on it. I think if you're starting to learn on it and it feels like very inception-y, like it's something that pays off, but it it is a little tricky when you're used to, um, you know, object-oriented. And I don't even know that you immediately see the value, but when you learn about how something like 
Redux is based off of it and you see how powerful it is and you're like, I can do time travel in Redux. I can like literally press play in my inspector tools and like watch actions unfold. And, you know, there's like the developer tools are top notch for Redux, but it allows you to write great tests. You know, you're manipulating state. You're not manipulating state. You're able to like look at different versions of state. So I don't know. I think that as opposed to manipulation, having this kind of sequential slices of state makes it super easy to debug. It makes it really easy to like isolate when a thing caused the thing that you don't like, you know, um, but you don't actually need, I think it's good to understand what functional programming is, but you definitely don't need to know it to like do a basic react application or anything. So what's the big picture of all the research that you did? Like, what did you learn from doing this exercise and what's your takeaway? Um, my takeaway is that it is so difficult to be learning anything to do with JavaScript in 2017 because there's so many, like, there are a lot of tooling recommendations because people get very enthusiastic about these, you know, different tools. Like I'm enthusiastic about React and Redux, but my... My takeaway, I really want it to be is like understand anytime you're considering learning a new thing or you have a problem that you think you need to look at, you know, certain tools that might fix it. I, I think it's always an excellent idea to spend a little time, you know, thinking about the architectural blocks that make up what your challenge is. I think a lot of experienced developers do this without thinking about it. But for someone who's new, it can feel very overwhelming and you're like, okay, I want to use React. Like, what is Babel? What is Webpack? Like, why are, what, like, I just want to, and then you can just shut down. So I think, I think trying to get a basic understanding of, you know, how these things connect and what, like, out of everything that you need to make an application, I talked about two of them today. I didn't talk about like, there's so many implementations you can use for routing, for styling, for structuring your data. Like those are all decisions that are on the developer or you could use something like Angular <laughs> or Ember, but it's really about knowing your comfort level and knowing, you know, do you want something where you're going to have to pick every single tool that you use? Or do you want something that has the comfort of knowing that, the whole system is already there for you, you know? Um, so I, I think it's really important to just identify what problem it is you're trying to solve and then look at how these tools, you know, match, match up against each other. So, um, yeah, I think it's just like, always keep in mind, don't get lost in like the coolness of things. If you, you might not even need to ever use React. Like at the company I'm at, we do a lot of like server rendered JSPs and it works fine because that like, should we update some things? Sure. But that's serving our purposes for the majority of our application. So I don't know. I think it's really about knowing what you want to accomplish by the tool that you're looking at and kind of keeping that in the front of your mind rather than pushing it down because you want to learn a new thing. So 
That's a, a great perspective to have. Uh, you know, first of all, if it's if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, don't rewrite it unless there's a reason to. Uh, some of the older technologies, they're tried and true. They still work fine for given tasks and. Uh, depending on the scope of the application, uh, you know, some server-side rendered thing might just work fine, uh, as, well, as well as something like jQuery or, or any of those other technologies that we mentioned. Um, just because there's a newer, shinier thing doesn't mean that those things are completely obsolete. We should never touch those ever again. Uh, so I, I think that's a, a great uh, takeaway from all this. And... Um, just for, for anybody out there that's that's new to React or new to JavaScript or any any of these things, do you have any advice on like where to learn or how to get some resources? Um, so f- for React, I I I took the like West Boss like online video course, um, which I found to be very good. I think he's updated it uh, at least a couple of times since then. Um, but I found that to be a good tutorial. And then Redux, the video series made by the creator of Redux, uh, which is Dan Abramoff, they're on Egghead.io. Um, his basic make a to-do app covers so much of the fundamental like core of Redux. It's very easy to follow. Um, and if you want to do complex things, <laughs> Like if you're looking at doing asynchronous data fetching, like route management, state management, all of that is really a wild jungle. You know, everybody will have a different recommendation for it. I mean, that's, to me, there's not like a single unified place. Um, There is a link I'll send you that I think has the best compilation of resources for Redux related questions. So like, you know, how can I denormalize and normalize again my state for you know for using data in Redux. You know, should I? It's so loose right now. There's not a lot of people can implement it based on their needs. So it feels. I think it can feel intimidating if you're looking for boilerplate. Uh, so I, I will. I'll send that link, and you can include it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, go to a meetup, talk to people who are using it. Um, and I think that's a really good way of, of trying to start to wrap your brain around it. And finally, I'm recommending a thing that I have not tried, but I've heard a lot of people like, which is the Create React, React app is a very quick way to just get up and get something made. Um, not recommended to use that to actually start a giant application with because I don't think it handle it's not flexible enough to do the things that a big application would do but it will allow you without working worrying about all your environmental tooling to get something that you can just dig your fingers into immediately and start playing around with excellent are there um, any places out there we can find your content or find you online and uh, see what you're up to um, yes I have a website margaretjames.io that um, right now is very basic and will continue to be built out. But that has a link to um, like my Twitter and my uh, LinkedIn and stuff if you want to get a hold of me and shoot me a message. Um, but yeah, I'm, for right now, I'm like between big, exciting projects. So it's a pretty, pretty basic website. 
But I used I used Hugo for it, which I would recommend to anyone who's looking for a static site generator. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and sharing your time with me. Um, I think this research project that you embarked on is a great way to uh, boost your experience level uh, much more quickly than just, uh, you know, the normal working on jobs, jobs related stuff and uh, getting out there and talking about it and uh, sharing your time with me on the shows. Again, another great way to to push that experience envelope. And uh, I commend you highly for that. Um, just wanted to give some quick um, references to people as well. Uh, we'll include everything that you talked about, Margaret, in the show notes. Um, and we also at Progress have released some new tooling for some of the stuff that we talked about today. So uh, on September 13th, we released uh, compatibility for our Kendo UI suite, which is a rich set of UI components, charts, graphs, grids, uh, schedulers, uh, all that amazing UI stuff. Uh, we have compatibility now with uh, React and Vue. So if you're a fan of Kendo UI or you need some of those controls for your Vue or React application, give us a shot. Uh, we have 30-day free trial of that at uh, kendoui.com. Uh, give it a chance. Check it out. Uh, so, Margaret, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 